0: Let's turn to Acts 17 and uh, verses uh, 14 to 17. Acts 17. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. We've looked for a few months at uh, Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and there is an example of of Peter preaching to moral and religious people. How the gospel then is applied to people who have some knowledge of the Bible. And here is a contrasting section which you're going to look at for a few weeks of Paul going into a, a totally pagan situation where the people of Greece came from a different tradition and a different background. How did Paul present the gospel to them? His visit there was quite unplanned um, at that particular time. It fitted into his strategy. His strategy was to go to the most influential centers of learning and commerce in the Mediterranean basin and speak in every such place about the claims of Jesus Christ, leaving behind him a worshipping and an evangelistic congregation of new Christians who would be led by elders and preachers. That was his broad strategy. And how long he would stay somewhere and where would be his next destination would depend then on the workings of God's providence. How his message was received, if there was a thriving response, and people longed for him to stay, then he would stay longer. But if not, if there was a fierce opposition, then um, he would run out he would be run out of town and he brushed the dust off his feet. And off he would go to another place where, again, he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the year preceding his arrival at uh, Athens, he'd been expelled from a place called Pisidian Antioch. He'd been threatened with stoning in Iconia. He'd actually been stoned and they thought they'd killed him in a place called Lystra. Then he obeyed God's call, and he sailed across the Aegean to Greece. But in the first place he arrived there, in Philippi, he was whipped and thrown into prison. That was the beginning of his mission into Europe. In Thessalonica, then, where he went next, the capital of Macedonia, his visit caused a riot. And in Berea, he was forced out of town by an angry mob. So that's where we are. That's the background then of the missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And so his companions then thought a boat trip was called for. They put Paul on a ship and it took him along the Greek coastline in a southeasterly direction. For 250 miles he sailed to the city of Athens. It would have been a time of rest and recovery and personal ministry to the passengers, all of which we are told precisely nothing. I remember well then um, sailing for 10 days in a cargo boat with three other passengers from Liverpool to Norfolk, Virginia, in August uh, 1961. The voyage cost me £60. Pounds. I was a 23-year-old student all on my own, on my way to study in America for three years. With mounting anticipation and excitement, I went on that journey, especially as we arrived and sailed up Chesapeake Bay on Labor Day, seeing the barbecues and the water skiing from the deck of this ship. It was called the Carl Fritzen. And I disembarked and went through immigration. I showed them the required X-ray of my chest, which I had taken with me by requirements of the American government which I had taken in the infirmary in Cardiff and I took a bus to New York I look back over 50 years ago I can hardly believe what I've told you actually happened that I travelled like that it seems to me like some fantasy so Paul took a boat and he sailed down the coast of Spain and uh, down the coast of Greece and uh, not Spain, and he arrived in Athens. And there were some companions that are just referred to in passing that accompanied him, that protected him and provided for him. He was so valuable and important in the uh, early church. They esteemed him. Their early suspicions had all been overcome and they knew now what uh, a great uh, teacher and preacher and evangelist and a man of prayer and counsellor he was. It was either the year 50 or the year 51. It was about 20 years almost after Pentecost. But accompanying Paul to this place there was no sound of a rushing mighty wind and no cloven tongues as a fire rested on him and no speaking in a language that he did not know. He had to prick up his ears and hear the dialect of the Athenians and learn to pronounce and communicate with them like that. He had to tune his Greek in. But he was uh, as great an evangelist as, uh, as Peter. I think he was the greatest pastor evangelist that the world has ever seen or ever will see. So in Athens then he presents the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that the citizens of that famous place would put their trust in God through Christ and serve him as their king in the fellowship of other believers. He told the Roman Christians about his convictions that motivated him to keep doing this all through his life. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see. And those who have not heard will understand. That was his ambition. That motivated him. Those principles. He tells the Ephesians, Although I am the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of God of Christ and so he felt he was given grace and given a ministry and authority from God and so he couldn't fail could he if God had called him and God had gifted him then we would see the progress of the gospel it wasn't going to fizzle out like the teacher of righteousness and the Qumran sect by the Dead Sea without God religion dies so the first thing I want you to see is how Paul surveyed Athens. He was waiting in Athens for Silas and Timothy to arrive, and he began to look around the city. That's how everybody called by God to minister in a certain area begins. He settles down, and he looks around. And he did so as thoroughly as he could. and not wasted days. He's not preaching yet. He's just seeing. He might get up at dawn and look around and see who's up early in the morning. Where are they going? He might, after dark, look around and wonder who's about and what are they at. Where are the people? Night and day. We had memorable visits. You remember this, you older members of the congregation, 25 years ago. He came most years. Michael Toogood. He was planting a church in Soho. You remember in London. And I was constantly challenged by his dedication and his self sacrifice. He told us of moving into Soho and firstly meeting his neighbors in the block of flats where they lived. They shared one toilet with all the other residents and it was stinking. And he describes cleaning it so that it sparkled. He showed his photographs. ...of the toilet. And his young teenage daughter... ...had to share that toilet... ...with other families there. He looked, he surveyed the place... ...that God had put him. Uh, What was going on in this street... ...and the adjacent streets. What was happening in the parish of Soho... ...with its terrible reputation. How could he start... ...planting a church... ...in an area like that... ...where do you meet people... How do you hold conversations with them about Jesus Christ? And Paul did the same thing then. Uh, He didn't depend on preternatural hunches. He looked around and observed and asked questions and thought how best he could bring the gospel to them. He was an educated man. He knew about Athens. It was one of the wonders of, of the ancient world. Its glory days had been 500 years earlier. And now was the afterglow. It was the late afternoon. Of that golden age. Half a millennium earlier. Well they had been the most glorious and famous nation in the world. The Persian Empire had attacked them twice. But Athens had defeated them twice. First at Marathon. Where a 100,000 Greek soldiers defeated over a million Persian soldiers. And then there was the second Persian invasion, and the famous 500 Spartans, 300 Spartans at Thermopylae had withstood the Persians for years and for days and days until they were betrayed. And in the centuries that followed then, um, Athens was the most envied city in the world. The metropolis was rebuilt after it had been invaded. Like uh, Ground Zero uh, after 9-11 has been uh, rebuilt and all the traces of uh, that uh, destruction of the Twin Towers has been removed. Great temples were built on the Parthenon and the Erechtheum were were erected on the Acropolis The Erechtheum is uh, the famous porch of the maidens. You know, the pillars are uh, carved like women. And the roof of the temple rests on their heads. You know, it's a famous uh, landmark in in Athens. And those buildings were intact and were used as Paul wandered around. But uh, the Athenians built a civilization. They established the first democracy in history. Athens was a city-state run by elected men. It was an age of literature with classic plays performed in theatres, bowl-shaped arenas with excellent acoustics, and a number of them are used today, and there are concerts and plays today that go back to the Athenian times. There were athletic games. There were schools of philosophy, uh, Socrates and Plato, the most famous Four great schools of philosophy in Athens. The Academy was founded by Plato. The Lyceum was founded by Aristotle. The Garden by Epicurus. And the Painted Porch by Zeno. What a cultured age it was. The world has hardly seen a little town with so much going on. Historians like Thucydides. Playwrights like Aristophanes. Rhetoricians like Demosthenes. But then it declined. Dark days came, civil war. Athens declared war on Sparta. And uh, it was terribly divisive and destructive. The city never regained its former glory. And Paul walked around a city wallowing in nostalgia. A populace looking back, trying to imitate the giants of the past. But it was still a place to go for Greek learning and culture. A magnet for the intellectual elite. A community of wannabe philosophers. Not at all a commercial centre like Corinth with its million people living there. A backwater provincial town of about 25,000 people. Not much bigger than Aberystwyth today. That was Athens as Paul wandered round and looked at it. Secondly, Paul was greatly distressed by what he saw. Before he uttered a word to the populace, Athens said something to him. And we are told of the reaction of Paul to that message. And it was a feeling of deep distress. He responded literally by a paroxysm. Um, He returned day after day from his walks around Athens, disturbed in his soul, the authorised version says, his spirit was provoked within him. Well, I've visited some great cities, and you have, and we visited Edinburgh, and maybe you've gone to New York, or St. Petersburg, or Paris, Sao Paulo, great cities. I've never felt like that, like he felt. But when I walk round a huge slum in Nairobi, Half a million, three quarters of a million people. I have had that paroxysm of compassion. The poverty, the enormous need, single mothers raising children in shacks, no running water, no toilets, open sewers, no income. And I feeling like a millionaire intruding and gawping and impotent, to help except in the smallest way in this vast shanty town disturbed by all I saw there are plenty of places in the world aren't there plenty of places in the world which cause us distress a great city is a great sin so Paul felt so bad not just because of the slavery and the, the rights of women so few And if a newly born child was unwanted, then he would just be put outside at midnight, food for the dogs. It was enough to make anyone groan. But that was not the prime reason for Paul's anguish. It was not that he was a Philistine with no sense of culture, no appreciation of poetry and literature and philosophy and architecture. He was a man of Tarsus. And that was no insignificant backwater. It wasn't like Nazareth. It was a leading city in that region. It was an educational and cultural center. It was famous for various schools. And some of its philosophers had an international reputation. There's no way that Paul could have grown up in such a place as that and not been aware of questions that uh, philosophers raise and uh, the battle for the minds of men. The uh, intellectual challenge that they throw out to thinkers. And Paul actually returns three years after his conversion. He returns to Tarsus. And it must have renewed his interest in, in that atmosphere. And then he went to Gamaliel, young um, young. Paul, he went to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of a great teacher, Gamaliel. And he excelled as a student, he tells us that in um, the first chapter of the letter to the Galatians. And occasionally then he will quote quote a Greek aphorism, a Greek, Greek proverb. And he'll write it in his letters, or he'll mention it in his preaching, as he does in the sermon that I read to you this morning. So he was no obscurantist. He wasn't naive about the battle for men's minds when he began to evangelize in Athens. He didn't just scream at them on street corners like a wild-eyed preacher. He planned his approach. He looked around, and he observed, and he thought. Uh, He was facing a combination of primitive superstition and high academic discussion. And he was emotionally distressed by what he saw. He wasn't a good old country boy who came and was contemptuous of city slickers. It wasn't like that at all. He grieved deeply because everywhere he turned in Athens, he was confronted with idols and temples along every street. The glory of the living God shone about them day by day. The sun shone in all its beauty. It Went over in arc through heaven like a chariot crossing the heavens. The rainbow shone, this gentle rain fell, the beauty of God, the hills, the foliage. In the night the stars twinkled overnight, no street lamps to hide, the cover of lights in the heavens and the moon shining, waxing and waning. And yet they were worshipping gods of stone and gods of wood. Each Athenian, from the slave to the governor, from the child to the elderly, had a conscience. Like you all have consciences. You have the voice of God, God's monitor, that tells you when you have done something wrong and rebukes you and convicts you. It's a sword and you kick against it to your own hurt. It commends you when you do what's right. And they were making sacrifices to idols. That's what they were doing. In proportion to its size, Athens had the most learned, educational, artistic, intellectual population the world has ever seen. It was a city of the arts, of wise men, of debaters, of arbiters of good tastes and yet these were the men who were bowing down and making sacrifice to idols they studied Plato and Aristotle and students today in philosophy departments in the universities of our land have difficulty in understanding what Plato and Aristotle wrote they quoted the poets they admired the dramatists and then they would pop into a a temple with its fertility rites and they would go to a young priestess and then they would make a sacrifice to cover their guilt afterwards they were suppressing the truth of God that was all around them and inside them and they were bowing before hideous idols of stone and Paul was filled with exasperated grief he'd never seen anything like Athens the Roman writer And satirist named Petronius once said, it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. The city simply teemed with idols. Another commentator said, Athens had more idols than all the rest of Greece together. The altars to Eumenides and Hermes, they stood at the entrance, every, every entrance to the city. There were idols the first thing that you saw they were they thought protecting the city there was the altar of the 12 gods and the temple of Ares that is Mars the temple of Apollo there was the image of Neptune on horseback there was the sanctuary of Bacchus there was a 40 foot high statue of Athena the mother goddess of the city they were on every street Athens was a forest of idols. It was desperately crude and despicable. The poor people drawn to them. The poor people spending money paying priests to make a sacrifice for them. The young women enslaved to the temples. If the true God was unknown in Athens, what knowledge of him was there in the darker places of the world, what knowledge at that time, 2,000 years ago, was there in Wales? Was there in Babylon? Was there in Rome? If men walked in darkness from the radiance of this green tree, what poor light came from the dry. So Paul was greatly exercised. His experience of the living God, his sight of him, his hearing of his words, His relationship to Jesus Christ, his moral sensitivity, shrunk. He he couldn't be taken up by the skill of the sculpture in designing an idol. He was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Verse 16. It was an emotional response. Here we are being tested. Here was the Lord Jesus. And he, he goes to Jerusalem and he speaks to them. He says, he that believes on me out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. Come to me. And they wouldn't come to him. And Jesus didn't shrug. He wept over them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that stones the prophets and kills those God has sent. I I would have protected you. I would have you. But you wouldn't come to me, he said. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish myself accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my own race. His heart's desire and prayer to God for his people was that they may be saved. So where does evangelism start then? Well, evangelism starts in your heart in a a washed heart, a cleansed heart. A stony heart of unbelief is taken away and God in his grace gives us a a new heart. A heart that fears him and loves him. A heart that is concerned that everyone should know about Jesus Christ, the, the son of the living God. Aren't there times in your life when you've seen vast crowds of people and have been moved by them? when you've seen uh, the crowds on the underground in London or Heathrow state occasions and people ten deep at every pavement the Lord Jesus had compassion on them a sheep without a shepherd William Chalmers Burns the great uh, missionary to China it wasn't a, a journey to China that made him a missionary God did something in his heart. He would walk along one of the streets of Glasgow, teeming with people, and see them, the masses walking, brushing past him, tens of thousands of them, and he would be overwhelmed at the sight of them. And he would have to go into a close where he could dry his tears as he thought of them and made in God's image, and ignorant and rejecting. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is Paul. He's just the same. You've you've had that occasion. Have you been to Cardiff on a Saturday afternoon and you discovered it was a a day of a rugby international. 75,000 men were there. And they were pouring out of uh, the stadium. And they were walking along St. Mary Street. And you saw them all, all these men, and they're talking and they're lively. And how few of them, how few of them know the living God? How few of them care that they don't know him? They don't know the, the answers to the great questions in, in life. There are idols. I can walk past. Uh, a shop here, and I can see idols for sale in the window. Today, I can see them. I can see Buddhas for sale, and Hindu and Egyptian gods for sale, and plenty of cats, and snakes, and fetishes. I've got a, a family that are in East Berlin, and they're working with a church there in East Berlin, and they go. They have three children. They go to a great park there in East Berlin. They've recently erected a statue of Baal Baal in this park in East Berlin idols you know don't have to have a physical presence you have an idol in your mind don't you you have a mental image and that mental image influences you so much it's what people do. People speak to you and people say to you, well, I think of God like this. And they tell you their, their image of God. And you feel sometimes it's a projection of what they would like to be themselves. It's an easygoing God, isn't it? The last thing that we see here is Paul reached out to Athens. He didn't say, what a terrible place. There's no place for the gospel here. I'm going. He stayed. And we're told this, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those that happened to be there. And I thought immediately of John Wesley's first visit to Newcastle. And uh, he was struck by the darkness and the ignorance and the blasphemies and the poverty and the dark satanic mills and the clouds of, of smoke that were all over the place the squalor of it all but how did he react? he says this place is ripe for him who said I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance it's ripe for him who said those things and there, of course, it was his northern um, base in the Great Triangle, London, Bristol, Newcastle, London, Bristol, around Wales a bit, up to Newcastle. And that's how he ministered, like the Apostle Paul, on missionary journeys. So what did Paul do? Well, first, we are told he went to the synagogue, and that was his pattern whenever he reached Uh, uh, city. He looked for his fellow countrymen. He said, can you tell me the way to the synagogue, please? And he explained what he meant and they could point it out to him. And there he met the devout people of Athens. Um, He'd meet there people acquainted with Holy Scripture. He would find God-fearing Greeks, people of Athens who looked at idolatry and the ugliness and the putrid nature of the temples and the women that were employed there and groaned about it and came then and wanted there was something better than this. And they loved the primitive whitewashed walls, simplicity of a synagogue. No icons at all. And then they would hear about the one God who made the heavens and the earth and the one God who would send the Messiah one day would bruise the serpent's head. They turned their backs on Greek polytheism and they came to the monotheism then of the Bible. And we're told about Paul um, entering a synagogue. In fact, in this same chapter, at the very beginning of chapter 17, you are told about him um, going to the synagogue in Thessalonica. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, are not a prominent, a few prominent women. Well, now then, you see, that's, that was his pattern. And um, there are strands of his encounter. He used scripture, he says. He reasoned with them from the scriptures because there was a point of contact there. They both recognized it as the word of God. And then we're told he reasoned. Uh, the word means to discuss or, or, or debate. It's used ten times in Acts. And then he explains, verse 3, It means to open up and clarify. And he proved, we're told, in verse 3. And it means to respond to objections and demonstrate the validity of one's claims. And then he proclaimed, verse 3, he declared with authority to them and uh, persuaded them. He was an advocate, and that word is found seven times in the Acts and the heart of his message, we're told, was the necessity of the cross of Christ, that the Son of God had to become the Lamb of God to uh, make atonement and propitiate the wrath of a sin-hating God. And that forgiveness can come to us because judgment for our sins was visited to Jesus Christ, God's Son. That that's, was the center of what he said and it was prophesied therein. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and so on. He spoke to them. Well, we've got to sit and listen to people and to their objections and answer their questions. And many people were joined to Paul and Silas. Verse 4, they became the first followers of Christ. And then they would say to them when they were thrown out of the synagogue, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves (coughs) unworthy (coughs) of everlasting life, we turn to the Gentiles. That's what they did. So, uh, we start, don't we? We start... We start with people we know. We don't make a judgment who seems close to the kingdom of God and who seems far away. That's not helpful. People you know. If all of us were praying for one person or two people every day, just praying for them, Bringing them to God. Asking providence to guide us and provide for us. And uh, we've got to go, haven't we? In uh, the Great Commission, Jesus didn't say, stay and let people come to you. He said, go. Go into all the world. Go, he says. Think of um, the people you're going to meet this week don't hurry away from them take time to speak with them show interest in them pray that the lord will open the door for you and pray that you could be bolder in speaking to them and we ought to be praying that on t- tuesday nights when we when we meet together surely uh, if we ask god to open doors for us surely god's going to open doors Surely that prayer is pleasing to God and that God will hear it and bless us. And then secondly, we are told he went to the marketplace day by day to those who happened to be there, people who were out shopping. And no plans to, to talk about religion. They just happened to be there and there he was, a new person, a distinguished looking person and he was friendly and talked to them. And he reasoned with them. That's all we're told about. So there wasn't preaching. It was a Socratic method in Socrates' own city. That is, he he talked to them and told them, "Oh, I'm <coughs> I'm actually a a teacher. I teach about Jesus Christ." Oh, who is he then? Because they love new ideas, didn't they? And they talked to him. And they, he dialogued and discussed. Where's our market? Well, it's not the supermarket because you're pushing a trolley and uh, you're waiting at the checkout counter and there are lots of other things going on. But your market is uh, waiting outside school for the children to come out to where you meet other mothers at half past three in the afternoon. Um, Your market is um, the school bus where you travel into school and out of school morning and evening. Your market is walking up the hill to the university to lectures. Your market is tomorrow morning hanging clothes on the line and your neighbor is doing the same thing over the little wall and you're talking about the weekend and uh, you're saying how you went to church on Sunday and so on. Your market is uh, coffee break at work or lunch break where you go to a place and make a cup of tea and you open your sandwiches and you talk to people and you tell them about the weekend. Asking people genuine questions. It's so important, isn't it? You, you're interested in them. It, it reveals commonalities, it relieves tension, it creates dialogue, it opens doors. There are dynamics when you, you ask questions. Um, a woman said to Becky Pippert, uh, I can't stand those hypocrites who go to church every Sunday. Makes me sick. Me too. I said, Becky, isn't it amazing how far they are from real Christianity? When you think of the distance between the real thing and how they behave, it's like worlds apart. Ever since I discovered what Christianity is really all about, the more mystified I am at the hypocrites. girl said, the real thing? Well, what do you mean by that? So they talked for an hour about the faith and the woman's hostility changed into curiosity because she'd been asked the question don't you think it amazing how far they are from real Christianity ask questions Um, do you have any kind of uh, spiritual beliefs ask questions is there some way I can pray for you Uh, ask questions do you ever think about God ask questions do you believe in heaven and hell ask questions if you died where will you go ask questions if what you're believing isn't true would you want to know ask questions We, we meet people all the time. We are engaged in people. We sit next to them or opposite them on the train to, uh, to Shrewsbury. And uh, they've sit, sat by us because we're, they're women and we're, we're women and they, they feel safe with us. And then they, they talk, ask questions. Here is Paul taking the good news of Jesus Christ into the maelstrom of uh, idolatry and unbelief and he took his feelings with him feelings of unbelief that such a sophisticated and educated people could worship an idol how sad Uh, we we feel sad today don't we because of the idols that people worship the idol of chance that this world came about by chance by accident by luck We're here by luck, and Beethoven, and uh, Shakespeare, and Mozart, and Rembrandt, and Einstein, and the Lord Jesus, are simply the products of chance. And we see all around us design, and purpose, and meaning, and continuity. And you've never been here before, and, and I'm speaking on profound truths, and you can understand what I'm saying because you and i are made in the image and likeness of the word the word who was with god and was god and by whom everything was made i feel grief at false religions i don't say oh they're all roads leading up to the same mountain top they're not some are not going up they're going down and down and down those roads We see what Paul did when he went there. And next time we'll look at what he said. Lord, bless your word to us now, we pray, and give us the same compassionate heart that the apostle Paul had, and give us a concern to seek our fellow countrymen and seek people in our marketplace and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.